Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. On this edition of Primetime Politics, the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff, Katie Telford, says she never told Justin Trudeau about allegations of sexual misconduct concerning the former head of the Canadian Forces. We'll hear from MPs who heard her testimony at committee. The Canadian Heritage Minister defends his changes to the Broadcast Act, which critics say threaten free speech. And our journalist panel will be in to look at the latest coronavirus developments with mixed vaccine messaging and a third wave which continues to batter parts of the country. But we start with some long-awaited testimony by Katie Telford, the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff and closest advisor, who told the Commons Defence Committee that she only had general knowledge of allegations against former Chief of Defence Staff Jonathan Vance. She says she did not know the allegations were of a sexual nature, and she was told by the country's highest bureaucrat, the Clerk of the Privy Council, that politicians should not be looking into the matter. Who made the decision not to tell the Prime Minister? When we found out about um, the unusual circumstance that the minister found himself in, we immediately took it seriously. We immediately took action with the appropriate people. You took it who seriously, follow up but on did it. not tell the prime minister. Who made the decision not to tell the prime minister? Madam Chair, on March 2nd, I learned... Um, that the minister and was seeking advice. Okay, and then next you knew. Order chair. Okay. Well, joining me now are three members of the Commons Defence Committee who heard from Katie Telford. Anita Vanderbilt is a Liberal MP for Ottawa West Nepean. James Bazan is a Conservative Defence critic and the MP for Selkirk Interlake Eastman. And Randall Garrison is the NDP critic, a Defence critic and MP for Esquimalt Saanich Souk. All three of you, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Okay, let's start with uh, the testimony. You've just come straight from that hearing. You heard the testimony. Uh, Ms. Vanderbilt, let's start with what you heard today from Katie Telford. How did what you heard today further the understanding of how the government has handled the allegations of sexual misconduct against General Jonathan Vance? What, what do you make of it? Uh, well, well, first of all, I think uh, what we really saw today was the sincerity and level of commitment uh, to the women and men of the Canadian Armed Forces. Uh, and, and everything that Ms. Telford said today is consistent with what we have heard previously in the committee, uh, whether it was Mr. Wernick, Ms. Sherman, uh, the minister uh, who appeared for six hours. Uh, what, what we've heard is that there wasn't anything known in 2018, uh, that there was a complaint. Uh, we know now, in hindsight, that it was an, an email, a sexually uh, suggestive email, um, but even that wasn't known. And so there was a, a PCO, which is the appropriate authority to look into it, reached an impasse. Uh, and what we learned new today is that Ms. Telford, uh, nonetheless, even though Mr. Walburn said he did not have the permission of the complainant to be able to bring anything forward for any kind of investigation, we do know that she made the extra step to get assurances through Ms. Sherman uh, from Mr. Walburn that there wasn't a safety concern, that there wasn't anybody that was uh, actually in trouble at that moment. And I think that also shows the level of commitment of Ms. Telford. But uh, really, there wasn't anything new today. We learned exactly what we've always known, okay. which is that there wasn't anything to tell. 
Okay, James Bazan, you repeatedly asked, the, uh, asked Ms. Telford why she didn't tell the Prime Minister. She said she didn't tell the Prime Minister because she was, didn't find it relevant. She was told that they were not to pursue the matter further, that the PCO, the Privy Council Office, had said, we will take over this investigation. Uh, what do you make of the testimony? Well, first of all, there was no investigation. It was just uh, them uh, reaching out and uh, dropping the ball. Secondly, we asked her over a dozen times why she failed to tell the Prime Minister, and if she didn't uh, direct it, who directed it and made that decision not to inform the Prime Minister. Uh, so it is just more evidence that uh, there is a cover-up uh, here, and that's a, a failure to both the uh, complainant, who had come forward with these allegations, to former Defence Ombudsman Gary Walborn, and it's a major failure uh, to the men and women who serve in uniform, uh, especially uh, to those women and men who have to live with sexual misconduct and have experienced sexual harassment. So it, the sad story in all this is that Katie Telford acknowledged that she knew it was a serious allegation and yet never fell, uh, followed through on it. And uh, by not uh, sharing this information with the Prime Minister, if we're to believe her and if we're to believe the Prime Minister that he didn't know, um, and she had multiple opportunities to inform about the allegations. They continued on to give him a pay raise. They extended on to and leave him in charge of Operation Honor, and they continued to uh, extend his contract for another three years. And during that time, uh, the, the, those that serve uh, continue to, to suffer. And today did nothing uh, that shows that the government is taking this serious and will restore the trust and confidence in such a major institution for the Canadian Armed Forces, and that includes in the rank and file who continue to serve okay. today. Um, Randall Garrison, your take on this. What do you make of it? Well, I don't think we need to uh, continue down the procedural rabbit hole with the Liberals. What we learned today is what we've known all along. The Minister of Defence knew there were sexual misconduct allegations against the Chief of Defence Staff. He told the Prime Minister's office, and the Prime Minister ought to have known. And what do we have for action as a result of this? No investigation advance, leaving him in charge of Operation Honor for three years when he was one of the perpetrators of sexual misconduct. And what we have is a failure of the government overall in its programs that are supposed to reduce sexual misconduct in the Canadian military. And we still have complaints of sexual assault sexual harassment occurring about once every two to three days in the Canadian military. So what I'm looking for now is the action from the government that demonstrates they understand the severity and urgency of this problem. And after six years, I still don't see that action. Okay, Ms. Vanderbilt, uh, that's the next question then. What do you make of this then as a committee? Is your committee's work done? I know you have to produce a report, but in terms of hearing witnesses and all that, where should your committee go from here? Thank you. And, and I, I think I need to correct uh, what Mr. Garrison said first about, uh, I think, very clear now that nobody knew the nature of those allegations. But it's I'm simply very glad not to hear true. It's simply not true, Anita. The evidence I'm, I'm, is okay, there. Whether well, you want to look at it or not, it's okay, simply well, let's, not let's true. Let's, let's let one person talk. And, uh, and what, what I'm very glad to hear, and I heard from Ms. Telford today, was assurances of action. She used those words. And we know that Madame Arbour and General Carignan are starting immediately to make sure that we create the kinds of processes where people, women and men, can feel that they can come forward. Okay, I want to put, I want to put something to you. Okay, I want to put something to you. You talk about action. One of the things that Katie Telford did say in her very opening statements was that she asked herself very often whether they had acted enough on the Marie Deschamps report six years ago that called for the creation of an independent 
way of looking into complaints and allegations of sexual harassment and violence. Uh, she said she often asked herself whether they moved ahead. Now you're announcing as a government another year-long study before you move ahead on an independent means to investigate these reports. Are you moving ahead fast enough? Uh, well, I, I think that everybody realizes the urgency of this. And, and just, just to go back to that point about, um, you know, the, the actions that were taken, I would, I would go back to what uh, Jody Thomas, the deputy minister, said, uh, which is that in 2015, uh, Madame Deschamps' report was left to be interpreted by the department and by the military. This time, it won't be interpreted. It will be implemented. And Madame Deschamps laid out the problem and gave very general specifics about an independent body. What Madame Arbour is doing is okay. actually giving exactly what that will look like, and then it will actually be created. And just to be clear, uh, there was a lot of action taken. There was a whole piece of legislation, C-77, a new institution created, the SMRC. Do we know now that it wasn't enough? Of course. Okay. Of course we do. And uh, yes, absolutely, we'll move faster. Okay. On uh, your fellow con uh, fellow committee members, uh, James Bazan, is it time for the committee to just get down to writing that final report, or are you going to fight for further witnesses? Look, we've had to deal with this cover-up. Uh, the Liberals continue to obfuscate, and the w women and men in uniform are still waiting for results. Right, and so uh, reports are, are one thing. And, you know, we, we suggested as Conservatives over two months ago uh, that we need to set up an independent organization, uh, take it outside of the, the chain of command, uh, that we need to have a Right, but in terms of your done. committee, have you taken this as far as you can take it? Well, you know, this is something the committee will have to discuss and, and, and go on from there. But at the end of the day, it, we still have to come back to the, to, to the issue of that we have a liberal government that refuses to act and that we still don't have the answers on who's responsible for this cover-up. And so it, it all, the buck stops somewhere with this accountability. And so Minister Sajan, uh, Katie Telford, and Justin Trudeau are all implicated in this cover-up. And uh, we need to look at next steps and, and on the accountability side. And uh, ultimately, we have to address the issues of making sure that the services and the leadership is in place uh, to build confidence back in our Canadian Armed Forces. Okay, Randall, uh, Randall Garrison, if you have your druthers, what should the committee be doing next and what are next steps? Well, I, I think what's really important here is that we finally get some action that will um, meet the requirements of the Deschamps report. And what we learned today is the Prime Minister never, ever asked the Minister of Defence to implement Deschamps uh, recommendations. So we've essentially wasted uh, the last five years when we could have been making progress. And, and what the Prime Minister asked the Minister of Defence to do was work with senior military leaders on uh, reducing harassment. Well, who he ended up working with because of his failure to act against Vance were people who were themselves responsible for sexual misconduct. So again, Going forward, I'm not sure how any new measures can have any credibility as long as no one takes responsibility for the failure to investigate and remove General Vance. Okay, on that note, I want to thank all three of you, and I want to wish you a, a good, healthy, happy weekend. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Martin. Thank you. The controversy continues over the Trudeau government's changes to the Broadcast Act, which opponents say threaten free speech. The new legislation is aimed at bringing web giants like Google, Netflix and YouTube under the Broadcasting Act with its requirements for Canadian content and to help fund Canadian productions. But a recent change would also include what's called user-generated content. And that's raised concerns that ordinary Canadians who upload content to sites like YouTube or TikTok would now be subject to government regulation. Here's opposition leader Aaron O'Toole. The Liberals 
quite frankly tried to sneak a change into this bill at the end that would have allowed regulation of social media posts by Canadians. The more people hear about this, the more concern they have. That freedom is fundamental and is really a great equalizer for our society. So we will fight hard. Canadian Heritage Minister St Stephen Guilbeault says he has now amended his legislation to protect free speech and address Canadians' concerns. Minister Guilbeault joins me now. Minister Guilbeault, thanks for taking the time. My pleasure. In the simplest possible language, because this stuff gets very complex with the CRTC and all that, but in the simplest possible language, persuade me and tell me what measures you have introduced or will introduce in your bill to prevent me, if I post something, say on YouTube, prevent my content from now being regulated or scrutinized by the CRTC? Well, this was never the case. I mean, this idea that somehow the CRTC, which has regulated broadcasting in Canada for decades, but has never said, has never told CPAC or the CBC or CTV, oh, you can do this program, but you can't do that program. That's not what the CRTC does. And, that, and, and Bill C-10 is not about that. Bill C-10 is about ensuring that some of the wealthiest companies in the world, like, like YouTube and, and Netflix and Disney, pay their fair share when it comes to investing in our culture, investing in Canadian artists and, and, and musicians, has nothing to do with, with content. And, and, and obviously, I mean, in the bill right now, even before the Conservatives started, started obstructing the progress, there, there are a number of clauses in that bill that say that in, individuals will not be subjected to the to, to, to this act, that the act has to res has to respect freedom of speech, freedom of journalism, freedom of creation. These are all elements that are that are, that are there and that and that have been voted on by all members of, okay, of, well, of, of the committee. Okay, well, clarify for me then. So, what is the concern about user generated content? Uh, there was a clause saying that that would not be touched. That clause was removed. The the groundswell of concern is about something called user generated content. People posting things. If I post something that's described uh, as, as a program, if I post it. Uh, you're saying there's never going to be any scrutiny, uh, any, anything not. that will affect that? No, I think I think the concern is that there are people who, who believe that there should be no laws when it comes to the internet. We should not regulate Facebook or YouTube or or Google, whether it's on uh, for, for to ensure that they, they they pay their fair share on on cultural uh, on cultural content, or uh, that um, when it comes to hate speech and then incitement to violence and terrorism, we, we see how what what happens if there's no control what in the U.S. on Capitol Hill on on January 6. And and th so those I I see those I, I you know I see. I recognize that this is a position that people have. I disagree with it. I think that there needs to be regulation for 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 these web giants, just like we have regulations. Right, right. For, no, for we're not. We're every not, other right. kinds of okay, but uh, we're of not industry. Yeah. Oh no, that's granted, and we all agree. We're, we're agreeing on the basic principles, but why? No, I don't think so. No, I mean, but, I, a lot of okay, but no, I'm, I'm in terms of my question are, though. In terms of my question though, you've clarified saying you want to, you're going to make it. Your changes are going to make it crystal clear that no, no, it's only, only, there only the commercial content so, would be. Uh, commercial content would be the only thing regulated, and yet we have this concern about self-generated content. So you're, you're saying that all of these concerns that have been expressed by experts are unfounded? 
Well, that, there's been they've been those experts that have spoken um, are are the, those type of people that believe that there should be no regulations on the on the internet. There's be, there've been a number of experts just today, um, two two law professors, uh, broadcasting experts, uh, half of the Yale panel that that actually did the consultations over two years to what led us to to, to propose Bill C10 uh, came out in support of uh, of it. Uh, we've seen. Um, Artistic cultural organization, musicians guild, independent producers, writers guild come out in, in support of, of of Bill of Bill C10. There, there's a lot of support for for Bill C10, and there are those people who who don't think we should be doing that. Well, so why then the change three weeks ago when your Liberal parliamentary secretary introduced this change, which removed there was a clause that said self-generated content, self, self things that are posted by individuals would not be touched or affected by this legislation. That was removed, and hence the concern by individuals saying, if you're removing that, then it would leave things open for self-generated, self-posted content to be regulated eventually or potentially. Uh, you're saying, and, and you've even responded to it by saying, no, I'm gonna make it crystal clear with changes to the act that that won't happen. So you're saying this is all now a creation of people's unrealistic well, I mean, so so. Your first question is why remove it? The well, because that was it was too, three weeks ago. Yeah, it was it was too broad, um, and it would have excluded uh, YouTube from from the legislation. And we don't think YouTube today is the largest distributor of music in Canada, and 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 they make a lot of money out of it. And we think that just like any other Canadian broadcasters, music stations, TV stations, they should be investing some of the revenues they generate in Canada in our musicians, in our creators. Um, and, and and as I said, you know, if you, if you only look at one and say, oh my God, you know, this everything is not in this bill, then all of a sudden all these things are possible. You're missing the point. I mean, right. obviously there are a number of other elements in, in in the bill that protect free speech that exclude individuals from 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 the CRTC regulation. That 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 ensure that the CRTC powers are are defined. It's not because it's not in one article that it's not. It's not in the bill. Uh, instead of talking about one article, we should be looking right. at, at, at okay. the bill. So yeah. you're saying that there's no, there's no situation in which if an individual posts something on YouTube, which is a very common way for individuals to share musical productions, for example, that individual would never uh, be in any way subject to any criteria of the uh, CRTC? I'm saying absolutely not. Okay. Now let's talk about the uh, support for your bill. There's the amendments. It's in the amendment stage. Uh, the Conservatives have called for you to pull this bill. Uh, it would appear that the majority of, of opposition parties aren't ready to support the bill as, as it is. How are you going to get it through, uh, through the committee and through the House? Actually, uh, both the NDP and the Bloc are on record saying that they supported the bill. Right, but the, they're calling the for a charter review now. They won't go further unless there's a charter review of it. There, there, there was a charter review uh, by by the Department of uh, of Justice that 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 was done uh, of 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 this bill, and and there is I mean there as you know you know committee make they make proposal they amend them they amendment they they debate so what what we're seeing right now is is one party the Conservative Party who even even before made itself the bill made it made it to the committee said that they would vote against it in fact they they they, they stood in the house and 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 before the study of the bill even started. They 
they, they, they asked for the bill to be scrapped. So they don't want this bill. They've never wanted this bill. They've been very clear from the beginning, and now they're filibustering, and they're trying to prevent the rest of us from okay. moving forward. And, 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 and by doing so, depriving artists and creators in Canada of hundreds of millions of dollars that would be invested by the web giants. Okay, on that, note, on that note, we'll have to wrap it up, but we will watch this with great interest. Thank you very much for taking the time. Thank you, Martin. Well, joining me now to look at the week in federal politics, as well as the country's response to the pandemic, are Mia Rabson. She is a parliamentary reporter for the Canadian Press. And Negan Sinclair, he is a writer and a columnist for the Winnipeg Free Press. Both of you, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having Okay, well, let's start with, uh, I want to start first just to get your overall reactions to, we had the long-awaited testimony today from the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff, Katie Telford. She says she was told by the Privy Council, the senior bureaucrats in the government, that politicians had no business investigating allegations against the then Chief of Defence Staff, Jonathan Vance, that it was a Privy Council who should look into it. She said that's why she never asked more about it. She didn't inquire into the exact nature of the allegations. She said that was also why she didn't tell the Prime Minister about it. Um, I want to get your reaction to where things stand now after after this testimony. Start with you, Mia. Well, I think that from this government and from maybe the previous government, we have had now repeated maybe willful blindness to what was happening. Um, but I don't know that Katie Telford shed, shed any new light on the problem. We know there is a problem in the Canadian military. We know it needs to be fixed. Uh, what she had to say doesn't actually ex expand on that. It doesn't clear the water, it doesn't actually fix anything. And at this point, Parliament is, I, I think, needs to set aside the, the politics of this and actually find a way to fix it. Because politics are not going to make the people of the military safer, and particularly women who come forward when they have allegations, and many serious allegations of, of harassment, of assault, uh, that need to get taken care of. Uh, sort of. The politics have to be put aside at this point. Okay, Nigan, your, uh, your reaction to today's latest episode in this, this, this look into it. Well, it's pretty shameful that most of this issue has been surrounding uh, which politician can cover whose butt, when, and so on. When really the issue is that there is an unsafe environment in the military for women. Uh, it's perpetuated and often covered up by those in the military for other people who are their friends or their compatriots or colleagues or whatever uh, leads to people covering up the issue. And then uh, this is a systemic issue. I mean, this is going on decades. Reports have come out. Uh, there has been a number of initiatives that have been trying to deal with this issue. And the fact remains that Parliament has taken a blind eye to this uh, in various different governments. And the challenge here is how do we create a safe environment for women and also people from the LGBTQ community? How do we create that environment in which people can come forward in a safe manner and they will know that they will be heard. And the idea that the chief of staff would not be speaking with the prime minister is probably the most preposterous thing I've ever heard in my life because uh, obviously this is a major national issue with major implications. It would definitely come up in any conversation with the prime minister and to think otherwise is just absolutely absurd. Okay, I want to get to um, COVID because obviously that is so much of our issues that we deal with week in, week out. I want to talk about one thing that really, really, it was a dominant 
issue debate phenomena this week, and that was a, the phenomena of mixed messaging over vaccines. The National Advisory Committee on Immunization suggesting that the two uh, MRN, mRNA vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna, were preferred vaccines. In a way, they weren't saying anything new scientifically, that there were some advantages over the Johnson & Johnson and the AstraZeneca vaccine, but also suggesting that people might want to wait for the preferred vaccine. Government and public health authorities around the country spent the rest of the week trying to undo that message. Mia, you follow this very, very in-depth. In what do you make of what happened this week? Well, I have joked a few times, partly just because if I don't joke about things right now, uh, you know, things get a little bit too serious. But the communications around this issue are far more dangerous to my health right now than any kind of vaccine. So it is it was a complete mess. Uh, there is no doubt the communications that came out of that. The messaging is maybe understandable, but nobody really heard anything beyond preferred. It was the word choice. It was, well, and all of those people, there were at that point almost 2 million Canadians who've lined up and got the AstraZeneca shot. And all they heard was, wait, you're telling me I got second best? It took a few days. They came back. They tried to clarify. But ultimately, this is a communications problem. It's a really delicate thing to talk about. This vaccine and, well, these two vaccines, the AstraZeneca vaccine and Johnson & Johnson, we now know have this risk. It's remote. Uh, but it is still a serious risk, and three Canadians have now died from it. So it's not something you can ignore. And it is a really delicate thing to communicate to Canadians why they should keep taking this vaccine if it causes this. And this is the problem. If communicating science is really not that easy. And this was a message that just did not get delivered well. And it's, I mean, they've spent the week trying to fix it. They're still going to be fixing it. I mean, I wrote today, there is a poll out, less than half of Canadians have confidence in those two vaccines now. But that said, it's also a little bit of a moot point because going forward, choosing which vaccine you're going to get is going to be a choice at all between Pfizer and Moderna. More than 80% of the vaccines we're getting this spring and more than three quarters of the total vaccines we're getting by September yeah. are Pfizer and Moderna. So for the most part, yeah. Canadians aren't going to have to make this choice going forward. It doesn't make any of the millions of people who already got this vaccine feel mm -hmm. any better. Okay, Nigan, I want to get your impression of this or, or the whole vaccination issue. Uh, what do you make of it? Yeah, the fact is that the we're going to be absolutely flush with vaccine in probably two months, uh, even less so if the uh, supply chain doesn't break down. I mean, the fact is is exactly what Mia is saying, which is that every Canadian will have access to the, the vaccines with the highest efficacy rates, which are Moderna and Pfizer. Um, there's nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with the AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson. However, with Johnson & Johnson, there has been some data challenges uh, that I've written about in my column. And uh, the, the, we, people shouldn't be shopping around. You know, the bottom line of it is, is that, you know, if you are a person in a fairly privileged lifestyle, you're not in a high risk community, you're not in a situation in which you're in an overcrowded house or a First Nations community where COVID is more likely to pass than anything else, the AstraZeneca is perfect for you. Uh, the fact is that we need to focus on targeted areas, and that's why the vaccines with the higher efficacy rates must be targeted in those. And who are those? Those tend to be seniors. They tend to be uh, Indigenous peoples. They tend to be people in poverty communities. I mean, th the fact is the rollout is working as planned, and people should uh, trust the process. And in the case of those who are feeling about which vaccine they should choose, uh, nobody, the vaccine doesn't choose anything but you. <laughs> or the, the sickness doesn't do anything but pick you. And so uh, choosing the vaccine is an absolutely silly process because 
Uh, the, if you're going to stop the sickness, uh, choose a vaccine that will assist you. Okay. And certainly the Johnson & Johnson and the AstraZeneca will protect you. Okay, I want to ask you, well, we've got you on. I mean, today we have some developing news out of Manitoba. The Premier is announcing a paid sick leave program, but he's also announcing a doubling of fines. And we're seeing figures that are now starting to skyrocket again in Manitoba. 500 cases after only about 300 cases. It's one of the single largest single-day increases. Is Manitoba joining the ranks of Ontario and Alberta in having underestimated and maybe neglected this third wave? Well, this is a case today of don't be like Doug Ford. And so uh, Manitoba is trying to be proactive before the sick leave issue catches up to them in the ways in which it happened in Ontario. And so that announcement today was, uh, albeit somewhat of a surprise, probably was a proactive measure to uh, reduce criticism. Uh, the Prime Minister, the Prime Minister, excuse me, the Premier here in Manitoba, Brian Pallister, has been under fire for weeks now of staying too open too long and not acting approximately two weeks previous when even the provincial health lead on this, uh, Dr. Rusin, uh, indicated that we must shut down immediately. That was two weeks ago. And now exactly what happened today, 500 cases that could have been stopped if restrictions had begun two weeks ago. You know, here, here it is. I have a daughter. I have a daughter in grade nine. Uh, she's more very likely going to be going to strictly online learning uh, like those in Ontario, like those in Alberta. Uh, the fact is that we are prepared for that. And anyone who's knowing is in the know about this sickness knows that this is what needs to take place in order to be proactive, to be able to reduce the count. And here in Manitoba, we can't put our heads in the sand because uh, the fact is we were at one point leading one of the places, the hotspots in the world on COVID-19, and we could easily get there again. Okay, I want to give just a last word to Mia in terms of what stands out for you in terms of this week and in terms of the third wave. Um, I think that the two things this week are really just this communication about the vaccine and really hoping that it does not convince people not to get vaccinated, that it doesn't harm overall hesitancy, uh, make people more hesitant and know that they can still get these vaccines. They're safe. They will protect you from COVID. But also we are starting to see signs in Ontario of things getting a little bit better, which is hope. And we know that there is vaccines coming, which is hope. You sort of this this cling to notion that maybe we're almost there. Um, we really, we really, if we can just sort of hold on for another month, another two months, get all of these, all people, uh, the first dose that they can, I, I do finally actually see hope for the summer. Okay, well, that's a good note to end on. I want to thank both of you. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah, me thank, thank you. Well, that's all the time we have for this edition of Primetime Politics. I'm Martin Stringer from all of us here at CPAC. Thanks for watching and have a great weekend.